Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Our topic today is refugee history, and in particular, refugee archives, the challenges of documenting and preserving the voices and experiences of refugees, migrants, and asylum seekers. To lead off that discussion and introduce the participants, I'll hand over to my History Workshop colleague, Ria Kapoor. Hello, everyone. Uh, this podcast is about refugee archives, how the histories of these displaced persons are recorded and with what consequences and possibilities. Particularly important given the frequency of refugee related headlines and the complex negotiations around asylum and responsibility in newspaper headlines across the globe, as well as the dangers of erasing refugees' own lived experiences and agency. To guide us through this complex process of preserving, engaging with, and representing refugees' experiences, we have four speakers who are historians and archivists working with these stories. So today we have with us Paul Dudman, who works with the Living Refugee Archive Project, which documents refugee lives in London and beyond. He's responsible for the Refugee Council Archive held at the University of East London. Heather Faulkner is joining us from the Records and Access team at UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency managing a collection that documents that organization's activities since 1951. Peter Gertrell is a historian of population displacement and the modern world. Peter has written several key works in the histories of refugees, such as The Making of the Modern Refugee, and more recently, a book on Europe's migration since 1945. He's also the principal investigator of the Reckoning with Refugeedom project. Mesna Kato is the convener of the Archives of the Disappeared Research Network and is a historian of the modern Middle East and in particular of migration, development and social histories of Palestinian refugee and exile communities. So I think a good starting point here is to ask what sorts of materials we're talking about today. What are refugee archives and who makes these materials? Heather, I wonder if you'd like to get us started. Thank you for inviting me on today, Ria. It's an interesting question as to what sort of material makes up a refugee archive, because in fact, there's more than one type of refugee archive that can be found in the world. The organisation that I work for, which is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, which deals with the forcibly displaced um, refugees and internally displaced people around the world, primarily holds the archives of the organisation. So what the records are, they're archives that have been created during UNHCR's work in the field with refugees all around the world since its creation in 1951. But Insofar as it's been created or received by UNHCR and added to its archive, it actually gives us a huge amount of diversity of material that we find. We have, for example, all sorts of correspondence between refugees, UNHCR representatives, UNHCR staff, field officers, particularly a lot of reporting from situations in the field which are often very fluid. We have records of UNHCR's decision-making through time in, in the face of some, some huge challenges. And a large part of our archive is, of course, the individual refugee case files documenting the circumstances of these people who have fled violence in, in their communities. On top of that, of course, we have um, the political and the advocacy records 
and how UNHCR has worked on behalf of refugees to help secure their rights, to protect them and assist them. And these records can come in many formats, which gives us a certain amount of challenge in giving access to this information. So we obviously, we have paper, we have microfiche, we have video, audio, photographic material, and increasingly uh, born digital content as well. So quite a diverse collection. Thank you so much, Ria, for the invitation to sort of talk to you today as part of this sort of podcast. Here at the sort of University of East London, we've housed a growing collection of refugee and forced migration archive for almost two decades now. This started with the arrival of the Refugee Council archive back in 2002, which is one of the key research and sort of advocacy collections focused on refugee and forced migration issues here in the UK. And it's, this is definitely a very interesting question, because I think, as Heather has just talked about, one kind of archive focuses very much on working directly with refugees and asylum seekers. The collections that we now have developed over a period of time, working with different NGOs and also working more directly with different communities and undertaking a range of civic engagement and outreach projects to actively go out and collect different materials beyond the scope of one named collection. So where we are now with the archive is we now have 17 individually named collections that focus on different aspects of refugee lives and look at different aspects of how both what an archive can contain and also different modes of how the material is represented. So through the material that we've got, we have, I think, nearly nine physical collections which primarily from UK-based charitable sectors or third sector organisations, NGOs, charities, etc. And these contain a range of materials similar to those which Heather has just mentioned. So case files, campaigning materials, publicity and outreach working to raise the awareness of campaigning issues. But more recently, we've also been looking at collecting oral history collections, both from NGOs and charities who have undertaken work with all different refugee groups. For example, one of the collections is the Voices of Kosovo Kosovo in Manchester, which was a project undertaken by a charity in Manchester who worked directly with Kosovan refugees coming to live in Manchester. So again, that opens up a whole new avenue in terms of how we go about representing the lived experience of migrants and refugees. Equal to that, we've also been able to work with individual groups on the ground to help them document their own history. An example we have is with a Chinese community group also in Manchester who we were able to support through an application to the Heritage Lottery Fund which is one of the funding bodies here in the UK for an old history project that would enable the organisation themselves to undertake their own old history of their Chinese Vietnamese communities in Manchester and then to document the old history outcomes within the archives. So I suppose to round up briefly we have both the collections which have been deposited with us but we've also been working around co-production of archives perhaps we start to bring in some of those first-hand narratives that sometimes are lacking within the wider archival collections okay well let me join in the conversation uh, from a slightly different perspective which i suppose you could say is one of a user rather than an archivist but of course as a historian or as a as a user i i rely very heavily upon the professional expertise of, of people such as Heather and Paul and, and colleagues around the world. And, and without 
without the archivist, there'd be no archive, so to speak. One thing that just occurred to me listening to to both Paul and, and Heather is that we're dealing with something that is dynamic rather than static. Uh, the archive is, is something that lives. It's not a kind of inert um, repository. But I also wanted to, to say that from my perspective, uh, th this discussion is particularly rewarding because it does invite us to think about the, the fundamental basis for, for writing refugee history, which is what interests me. And if you're thinking about refugee history, obviously at the forefront of your mind is, is trying to find out something about the perspectives or the voices of, of refugees. So in a way, uh, if I could put it like this, the holy grail for the historian is coming face to face with a refugee um, for, from you know maybe 50 or 100 years ago. But it's important to realise that in writing refugee history, as a historian, you're able to access other kinds of material as well. So beyond the archive, there are, there are published records, you know, newspapers and so forth, as well as the personal testimony that, that, that Paul and Heather have both uh, talked about. And furthermore, you, you have to understand, I think, that writing refugee history is, is partly about accepting that there's what people now call a refugee regime or a kind of apparatus that make, that's made up of, of intergovernmental organisations like the League of Nations between the wars or like the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, Refugee Agency since 51, uh, but also the, the role and therefore the voices of, of governments and non-governmental organisations that are also discussing a policy that have profound implications for, for refugees. But then making refugees appear in archives is, is partly, of course, that refugees want to make themselves heard or known. So what particularly interests me at the moment is, is the archive as a record of the encounter between refugees and people such as officials or lawyers who are acting on their behalf. So it's the approach that refugees make towards these agencies in the form of letters or petitions or appeals that I, I think are particularly valuable. And, and whenever I come across those, my, my mood lifts. <laughs> Thank you. Um, thank you, um, Ria, for having me, and it's such an honor to be in such great company. I, you know, this question around uh, what sorts of materials and who makes the archive and who makes me, uh, who make who makes these materials is really important because it gets to something that I think a lot about, at least, which is how to think about the refusal of a refugee to produce materials that are legible to us as historians or as archivists? And how do we think about the, the everyday life of being um, a refugee, the experience of being a refugee, and those who never survived such that they may be archived. They never survived the journey, the march, the death camp, the, you know, the, the cataclysmic condition. And, and then in that sense, what material other than their own body do they leave behind as part of this refugee archive? And this is something I think that artists in particular have been very thoughtful around. Um, I'm thinking in part, you know, of the beautiful work that Armenian artists have done around uh, post-genocide Armenian refugees, or for example, some of the artwork, not all of it, some of it is a little dire, but some of the artwork 
that has to do with the, um, the post-2015 moment in the Mediterranean, as it were. And the refugee body is also an archive of the experience of becoming and being a refugee. So the materials of refugee archives are expansive and they, they kind of, I, I think one of the distinctions that I always hear from archivists and one of the frustrations that I hear is this sense that a lot of historians, especially social historians of refugees tend to regard anything that is informal or informal collections as an archive. And I think one of the things that we need to sort of distinguish is between refugee collections and refugee archives. I think the things that Heather and Paul do to sort of gather, index, handlist, catalog, give form and shape and interpretive value to archives is a kind of work that um, it shapes what we understand to be refugee history just as much as we as refugees, uh, refugee historians do. When we encounter those archives, that's very different than encountering collections of ref by refugees, produced by refugees themselves, private family papers, photographs, ad hoc collections of albums, scraps and shards of documentation in plastic bags that make, you know, that survive journeys and are handed down from one generation to the next. Um, those kinds of collections, I don't think, you know, have a different kind of provenance and a different kind of historicity, but I wouldn't sort of glom them all together in, and, and call them refugee archives. It's not doing enough work to do so. It's a very interesting point, actually. Quite often, we find with uh, refugees who have been forced to flee is they often don't have an awful lot of things that they're able to take with them when they go. And certainly, I've had one case where I had a refugee who left uh, Vietnam by boat in the late 1970s who contacted us to ask us whether we had anything in the UNHCR archives that could sort of confirm his experience because he had arrived in Singapore, been resettled to the USA, and really he had nothing at all from his life before. And the fact that we're able to dig into the archives and find the report that had been sent from the office to Singapore to headquarters explaining how this boat had set off and they had been passed by six different boats that didn't rescue them. They'd been raided by pirates before eventually being picked up by a, a boat that delivered them to Singapore. And he said in his response that this was like having a second birth certificate because it just proved something, uh, gave evidence of something that to that moment had only existed in his mind. And that's one thing I think is kind of the value of these kinds of archives is that they can act as a, uh, a piece of proof that a refugee can take and say, yes, I existed, I had this experience, it's been documented and it can give, be, be given back to me, it validates their experience in a way. Uh, and, 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 and it was something that impressed upon me uh, that this is not just an archive, this is not just bits of paper and digital records that we hold in our system, this has the power to, to change people's lives. Uh, Peter put his hand up first. Well, I just wanted to follow on uh, some of the important points that Mesner was making a moment ago uh, around the whole question of 
what we might call gaps and silences in the archive. But I suppose also to, to recognize that although there are specific issues around those gaps and silences where refugees are concerned, this is part of the, of the, the generality of, of the archive. If I think, for example, about some of the things that the British government has done with handling or mishandling uh, or losing or destroying archives, um, you know, historians encounter these in, in, in different situations as well. But her general point about the need to think about uh, archives as having different kinds of provenance and uh, different kinds of histories themselves, as well as the gaps and silences, is absolutely fundamental. I, I couldn't agree more. I'm very glad she made that point. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I think it's all. Uh, 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 Sue, uh, us too, from the work we've tried to do now. But I think certainly I, I would agree wholeheartedly that there is a sort of there can be a, a sort of fundamental a sort of separation between what perhaps what we traditionally sort of thought was a refugee archives as opposed to the kinds of sort of wider refugee you know, collections that we're talking about. And I think certainly this is some of the work process we've tried to take with the archive. The, the, sort of what the wider archiving work that we try to do now is to try and where possible to bring the sort of co-production of new archival material whether that's working on old history projects uh, we're sort of just about to start a project at the moment which is working with a, a sort of southeast asian artist on looking at issues around theater and performance as an alternative methodology for documented Southeast Asian refugee history in East London, for example, and as well as working with artists and also working with the yeah, Chilean community in East London to run this all, how we all collect and document objects as an, which act as a this all narrative space for all documenting these kind of histories. So absolutely agree. So totally it's all, I think it's important for us sometimes as archivists, when we're in this position, to be able to keep an open mind about what constitutes an archive and how we should go about sort of ensuring that we're responsive to and representative of the wider history of, sort of refugee movements. I think we've sort of gone into the, the question really that uh, in very naturally of the challenges of preserving and telling uh, refugee stories, but I suppose the one we haven't really thought about is whether these collections are ever complete, uh, or if there's ever any potential of them being complete. I think Mesna did say something about that, and it's sort of an ongoing process, really. But can can this ever be the full story? I would hope not. I would hope not. I don't think, I mean, any archival collection should ever be complete. I think there's a kind of almost authoritarian gesture to proclaim an archive complete, as if history is complete. And I think the move also to sort of not just think of it as gathering, constantly hoarding more and more materials, but even the idea of reconsider, reconsidering how we organize our archives, how, we, how can we remake the archive constantly in ways that speak to the challenges and the historiographical, new historiographical challenges, new political challenges to the way these archives are shaped and formed and produced and made is really important. I think sometimes 
especially state and institutional collections, gesture towards completeness as a way of, in fact, circumventing potential challenges as to their um, sort of right to hold certain things and to hold certain documents. And also this, because completeness then can kind of be sort of kept under lock and key. Um, there's a way in which, you know, we are no longer collecting materials can be, well, we're no longer also making them accessible. This is certainly the case with collections that are held by particular states or institutions that feel under threat or are underfunded by states. So yeah, I think it's, it's really important to always call these incomplete projects. And as someone else mentioned, and dynamic ones. Are you going to jump in? I just wanted to, to add that, of course, the, the idea of something being complete is, is a kind of fantasy that uh, people who are listening to this who've, who've been in an archive will, will be familiar with the box or the, the ribbon that ties the, the collection together. And, you, you know, it, it seems as if all, all that you need is going to be contained within this file. But of course, it's a complete, complete fantasy. The, the question I have in my mind is, is not so much about completeness, but about the idea of the, the record or the trail that goes cold. Uh, as Heather will know, I've been looking at a lot of um, individual case files that UNHCR put together in the 50s, 60s and early 70s. And of course, this is very rich material, but it can be incredibly frustrating because somebody has, has put a file together and is regarded it as complete. The case is closed. But as far as you're concerned, it's not closed because they, they don't tell you what's happened and you can't follow this individual through. So, sometimes you can through triangulating it with other source material, but it's incredibly frustrating that, that something that seems to be complete is only complete in inverted commas because some official has, has stamped it closed. And you know full well that this person you know, may have lived five, 10, 50 years later, and you, you, you simply do not know what became of him or her. It's an interesting point because um, with the archival collections, of course, particularly in an organization like UNHCR, um, there has to be some limits on, on which records are going to, you're going to invest your preservation and, and collection uh, in, in retaining, because of course UNHCR is, is uh, funded by voluntary, voluntary funding um, and therefore every dollar that the organization receives has to count. So what we are collecting in the UNHCR archives and retaining is evidence of UNHCR's work with refugees on behalf of refugees to protect and assist refugees. But I totally understand the frustrations um, of a researcher who might say, oh, and this is the end of the story. What it actually means that this is the end of UNHCR's involvement in that particular person's story. As to whenever an archive could be complete, in some ways I would love the UNHCR archive to be complete because that would mean that the problem of refugees in the world has been totally solved. The day that there is no more refugee case files created would be the day that there's no more refugees. Unfortunately, there's always been refugees, even though they've only been legally recognized as such since the 1950s and only been assisted as such um, in, in the modern era. And therefore I'm inclined to agree with Mesna that ultimately the collection or the archive, the archival record relating to refugees will 
not be complete in my lifetime. That is my prediction. Yes, and I think, yes, some of the very interesting questions I'm raised here. And I think certainly from our perspective, I mean, I know, I suppose ours is interesting because we act both as a repository for archives, third parties, essentially. So we are, de- in a way, we are dependent on their record keeping before the archive comes to us in terms of what has survived and what may not have survived or as we often sometimes find some some areas are sort of better documented than than others so you're constantly sort of having to having to sort of work with those silences and those sort of, those gaps within the archival record but it's also I suppose equally we're sort of having sometimes having to work with those organizations where the material comes to us are this happened a couple of times at the the end of the charity's sort of working life so there's no chance then to actually go back and, and perhaps sort of interrogate those who who's all may have worked in that that charity as all why are there these gaps in this part of the archive and sort of not others so it's on the positive side i suppose we do have the the opportunity to be able to go out and actively collect and develop projects beyond the scope of what we have in the archive already, which does present, albeit limited opportunities, I think, okay, to, to help preserve other collections, other histories that may not otherwise be documented within the archival space. And just quickly, one example is that we've been able to work just recently with in collaboration with Hackney Archives to preserve the one of the key archives documenting the history of the sort of Chinese community and Vietnamese community in Hackney, which had been unfortunately their previous sort of office had been taken over by squatters, the archive had been dumped on the roof, and had been left open to rain, snow, and all sorts. But we were able to just be able to secure funding to get that conserved and hopefully eventually rehouse that. So that's a perhaps a some ways an example of both how easily refugee history can be lost, but also sometimes the opportunities that presents for collaborative working and the ability in a small way to be able to sort of preserve it and hopefully eventually make accessible a, a, a wider range of, sort of refugee history. The, there was a couple of interesting points there that I picked up on. Uh, one is the, 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 the plural, plurality of archives, in fact, relating to, to refugees. And I find this very interesting. And one of the things that, we, that I try to do in my profession is if, if I find a, a, a researcher who's looking for something that does go beyond the scope of the archives of UNHCR is to try and guide them to a place where they might find complementary materials. And I think the idea that there is one archive of everything that relates to refugees is is, is not um, a reality. It's you will find some relevant information with us potentially, and then you might find some in, for example, relating to the International Refugee Organization in the archives um, of the Arolsen archives in, in Germany, and there's various other organizations such as Pols 
archive in, in University of East London that's actively collecting things like oral histories. And I think that it's quite complementary at the end of the day to have different institutions playing slightly different roles in gathering together, something that can be used in the round by various different researchers globally, which is a positive development in my view. The other point actually that Paul made about preservation and records at risk is actually very interesting indeed, because obviously UNHCR is working in some very deep field locations around the world and archives are put at risk uh, every day from all sorts of threats to their physical integrity. Um, and also to, to their security is something that we also give a huge amount of thought to, to make sure that the information that UNHCR is trusted with is, is securely held. Flood and fire, for example, are some things that we've had experience of. We've had operations where we've had to restore material that's been damaged by, by flooding in particular. And uh, another big challenge is maintaining the history of the present because we are now in a digital age and if you have an electronic file and you save it on a server there is no guarantee that that will last for the long term without a direct intervention to make sure that these formats remain readable and that there's no corruption and that essentially these this is a program of digital preservation that requires careful management careful uh, intervention to make sure that this information, this crucial information, as we've been discussing, will last in the long term. So that's a challenge for the archivists that's perhaps less visible than some of the other work that we do. Yes, jumping just quickly on that one. Yes, and I think I agree totally. I, I think that the current situation that we find ourselves in that was COVID-19 COVID and the sort of one, yet pandemic has only sort of heightened both the, the need for us to find better ways of how we preserve this kind of, sort of virtual information. And I, I suppose also something that I had written down is sort of looking at new ways that we start to make this material accessible uh, to us as, 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 as audiences now, because I think I'm sure sort of, I can speak for, probably for most archivists that we've had inquiries over the last year during the various lockdowns that we've had in the UK that we've just unfortunately not been able to sort of answer effectively because we've not had access to the physical documents that would be able to answer those inquiries. So I think it's it's certainly an area that we're looking at sort of at the moment in terms of thinking about what are the ways in which we both sort of how we make the material available and I suppose equally importantly what how much of the archive sort of can we make a Available, especially when we're dealing with sort of so many sort of sensitivities around sort of refugee lives and sort of the, the, their sort of yet lived experience. So I think that's certainly an area I think that will con continue to raise questions for a while yet. I think. Can Can I just come in there because I, I think this is a discussion that is really fundamental around questions of ownership and access and the opportunities, but also the risks that are associated with uh, digitization. Um, people may be familiar with the recent, I, I can only call it scandal, uh, that erupted on, on Twitter in the last few days, um, when somebody decided it was a good idea to reproduce and colorize uh, images of uh, 
victims of the Khmer Rouge during the Cambodian genocide. And it suggests to me that people can be extraordinarily insensitive and clumsy when it comes to seizing what they think are terrific opportunities to restore or recompose images of people who gave no consent, whose families gave no consent. And this could be construed as a, a kind of enlarging the, uh, the audience for this material and, and therefore to be conceived of as a kind of socially or even politically useful activity, but it's in incredibly uh, ethically dubious and uh, upsetting for the people who, who survived. Indeed, it's an interesting point because at that point when you start to manipulate images, they're no longer the authentic original archive that was created at the time. So that's something where I think as an archivist, I feel strongly that the, the objects that we preserve are in, insofar as possible, they are the authentic original versions of those records created at that moment in time. Um, I just, I wanted to kind of think a little bit, maybe for an audience as well, that thinks about it their own lives and the, the, the politics and the practices of digitization about a, a slightly different scale of archive, which is the archive of the digital world. And to think about all of the material that historians usually have used, at least at the social historical scale, to write about refugee lives, like letters, like um, postcards, that those have been replaced with WhatsApp messages, texts, DMs, Facebook posts. These kinds of things have become corporatized. They're privatized. They're not owned by the public. They are inaccessible in many ways, sometimes to the person who produced them themselves. If your Twitter account is suspended, <laughs> or if you have to delete it for whatever reason and never can retrieve it again. And I think it's interesting there to think about what kinds of ways the sort of the digital turn is also a process of erasure and what kinds of histories will be possible of the present as a result of this new digital turn. I'm unsure, I don't, I don't know what historians 100 years, 50 years, 20, 50, 100 years from now will do in the face of irretrievabilities. And there is a kind of, there is a moment where, you know, when, when you think about, for example, how will we write about the ways refugees connected with each other, built socialities that supported each other in the last 10 years, and the importance of these social media tools, how they'll be recorded, how they'll be processed, how we'll even access them as historians is something that kind of haunts any, anyone thinking around archiving the experience and histories of refugees. Yes, I think there's some very important points there, I think, and it's, uh, I think it's an issue, I think it's all, most of us as archivists are sort of, yeah, historians are sort of thinking about and sort of, Probably have a sort of degree of concern over how, if and how these will be documented and preserved in some way. I, I, I think perhaps it's 
sort of thinking aloud almost. I think we perhaps do need longer term to start thinking about sort of perhaps sort of wider sort of collaborations in, in documenting this kind of material to ensure that it is social media has grown so fast, so quickly, and has become so sort of powerful these days that I'm not sure any one archive, whether it be local, national, or international, potentially has the scope or the remit to be able to do this work individually. So I'm just both thinking aloud for our audience as well, whether perhaps in some ways we need to start being less, almost less protective of our the, the archival space that we look after and start to think about how can we bring Brings all networks and collaborations together that will enable at least some of this social media content to be properly archived, preserved, and at some point accessible further down the line, or at least to provide opportunities for key aspects of this kind of work to be done. But I think, and I thought certainly from our case, it would be very hard, almost as I say, probably next to impossible to sort of for us to to go out and adequately document a social a social media history of refugee issues at the moment, but I think it, possibly then if if there is scope for doing a wider collaboration in terms of working with potential partners on this, that could that could be one of the ways in which this is all undertaken, perhaps. Could, could I just come in here because I recognise the importance of, of what's being said and, and absolutely endorse what has been said about collaborative possibilities. On the other hand, if we think about this historically, we shouldn't overlook the fact that is, issues around destruction and loss have been around a, an awful long time. And although I can understand how there's potential for kind of erasing a whole lot of content that's that takes place in the way that Mesner was describing through social media. I can understand how that could create a kind of great hole for, the, for future historians, but, but, but the fundamental issue still remains, it seems to me, that the historian has always been confronted by erasure, whether it's through destruction or, or loss of, of one kind or another, or you know, insects eating at archives that, that, have, that have been uh, lost forever. And it also occurs to me, and another thought, which is slightly more positive, that when Mesler spoke at the very beginning in a really valuable way about artistic production, granted that this may involve issues of copyright and access and ownership and all the rest of it, uh, but never, nevertheless, one of the things that seems to me to be clear from recent years is that we do have a very extensive, rich archive, if you like, of, of, of visual material, of, of artistic work, um, including you know, film and photography, which does, it seem to me, uh, does constitute an important resource for future historians to, to, to make use of. So I'm not in, in any way denying or, or minimizing the, the challenges of, of, of in, embarking in, in a kind of digital 
a historical sense, but I, I think we should at least recognize that there may be opportunities uh, here um, and, and not just a question of kind of a, a digital apocalypse. Uh, um, sorry, Heather, you go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, I really like that digital apocalypse. <laughs> I mean, I think that there's also, it should be acknowledged that the profession of archives and records management are very aware of this uh, challenge. And uh, certainly in our organization, we have a program of digital preservation and digital intervention to try and grab these records before they, they disappear into this uh, digital black hole that we talk about. And I think that there is this huge amount of work being done behind the scenes to allow this material to endure in the long term um, and one of the advantages of, of having a, an institutional archive like the one that I work in is that uh, that information is valued by that organization that is investing the money to protect that and make sure that it's not lost because we um, know that we rely on the, the wisdom and the knowledge written down in these archives to inform our decision making as an organization. And I think that as that information awareness becomes more mainstream, there is uh, positive work going on uh, in the world to try and make sure that records and information protect, uh, created is in fact protected, not just against the flood, not just against the bombs falling in, in Damascus. We evacuated a very large archive from Damascus to Geneva in order to protect them from being destroyed, but also to protect against this digital obsolescence, which has the, the potential to leave a huge void in, in the historical record. So I wonder, we've talked about how the archives are not complete. We've talked about the problems of erasure and we've also talked about chasing trails and what we can find, the full stories that are unearthed by the archive as well. What kind of histories are we able to write? And perhaps this is really for the historians in the room with the materials we do have. Uh, and how would we perhaps write better histories that include more voices? And I think that touches on some of the issues of accessibility that we've also talked about. Uh, over this conversation. Well, I, I want to hear what Mesna has to say as, as well. But if, if I then go first, uh, and the, the, the point about refugee history is, is that, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it, it, if you'll pardon the expression, it has to be a kind of total history, that refugee history is not just about refugees. I mean, it is about refugees, but refugees are embedded in a kind of web or, or network of, of of other associations and, and affiliations. And as I said at the beginning, encounters. So of course it's about the connections between refugees and non-refugees. It's about the connection between refugees who move and refugees who are unable to move. Uh, it's about the connection between refugees and, and people who are no longer alive, but who, who they carry in their, in their heads and hearts. Um, but it's also of course, inevitably given the world in which we live about the relationship between refugees, governments, non-governmental organizations and, and intergovernmental organizations. So you can't write, it seems to me, uh, about the one without thinking about the other. And in, in writing about refugees, you're, you're writing about them as, as flesh and blood hu human beings who've got their own aspirations uh, as well as their own problems connected to, to their displacement. But you know you, you have to accept that that their agency, which is a, a buzzword these days, is constrained by by circumstances that are often beyond their control. 
what's really compelling to me is, is when you find this encounter between refugees and organizations such as UNHCR, in which I won't say refugees come out on top, but at least they're able to sort of hold their own in the face of institutions that can be uh, very powerful and can seem very impersonal and, and, and even brutal. Yeah, I, you know, I'm a little, I'm still, uh, even though I work on, um, partly work on um, histories of refugees, I'm still unsure about it as a, as a field in itself, as a kind of, or subfield, but I, you know, or to circumscribe it as such for some of the reasons that Peter pointed out. But I think one of the most important things that searching for and looking for materials and looking for stories about refugees does is that it's sort of it's it's sort of less about often just as much actually about writing about people on the margins, people on the move, people who transnational figures, people with less circumscribed by um, power and violence and war and dispossession, but also thinking about fundamental questions about the formation of the modern state, the creation of ideas of, you know, of sovereignty and self-determination and the nation from the standpoint of, the, um, uh, of those who were excluded from those categories. What does it mean? What is a political community and who, who does not belong? And, or from the standpoint of the, the, those who were not allowed to belong to that political community or social community. So it's, it's sort of the refugee, there is sometimes this tendency to over theorize the refugee, right? And think about it, you know, the refugees become abstractions. But I think that the experience of and the history of being and becoming a refugee or, you know, living an undocumented life or a life of exile or displacement or dispossession or forced migration. You know, all of, I'm using these words in a kind of rolled way because there are so many categories and I, I sort of want to refuse the narrow constraints of a legalized definition of a refugee. But in exploring those kinds of lives, we, we start learning more about bigger questions about ourselves and, 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 and different kinds of futurities and futures and imaginaries of, of, of the world. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting in the sense, it's not to romanticize the condition of being a refugee at all, but it's to sort of think about and ask as a historian, when I'm thinking about um, and writing about refugees to not place so much weight on sort of telling their story or reclaiming them into history as it were, but to, but in writing, sorry, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking loud, but I'm, I'm I, one of the things I'm thinking about is, is, is the weight that we place on refugees to say their history, tell their history, and for refugee historians to kind of recover them for history. And really to think about like th that, in a sense, their very existence of ref as refugees tells us a lot about who we are 
and the history of, you know, wherever we're, we're from and, and wherever, whatever we call home. Yeah, that there is no history of the nation or the state without a history of the refugee and without a history of that person who was never included or who was forced, you know, who was, you know, purposefully excluded. Well, I, just uh, to, to, to riff a moment on, on, on what Mesner said, and I really appreciate the way in which she's thinking out, out loud. All, all I, I think I would say, apart from endorsing what she has to say about, you know, this, this is a history about categorization, categorization that's kind of inflicted upon uh, other, other people who are, who are deemed to be re refugees. I think the only thing I, I would say, and this comes across from some of the case files that I've been looking at, is that one of the things that's very kind of engaging and even inspiring is, is that from time to time, you will find refugees who don't just say, uh, I, I need some compensation, I need some uh, some travel documents or whatever it is, but they say, here is, an here is another world. Here is an alternative universe. Here, here is my imaginative scheme for resolving the question of, of being a refugee. And I'm not saying that's a, that's a very frequent observation in, in the files, but when it happens, it's, it's a reminder that refugees are, are not just in the moment of their displacement thinking about what's to become of me, but are also capable of thinking, what might the world itself look like if we imagine it differently? Yeah, I, yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, one of the things again, to think about the refugee as a category of history is to think like the refugee is also somebody who's part of perhaps a political movement, who was exiled as a result of, you know, their politics, as a result of their national identity, as a result of settler colonial ambitions to their homelands. So there are, the, they don't carry, there's often this idea where a person collapses into being merely a refugee and having demands solely as a refugee. But in fact, being a refugee is part of a whole constellation of identities and belongings of that person and that shape and form the demands they make to institutions, to states, to international bodies. And it's important to always kind of insist on not sort of both, both individuating refugees such that they never have collective ideas. The idea that you know the, the, a refugee is only out for himself or herself and their family is just not true, you know. And often they have they build collective voices and popular committees and vibrant lives within camps and uh, on the move. So that's one piece. And then the other is to say that, you know, they may have documentation that defines them as refugee, but there are many, many other things. And it's incumbent upon even the archives of, uh, you know, even in the process of archiving to make sure that we don't sort of strip them of those identities and focus on one above all. Yes, I think that's a very good point and something we've kind of certainly an aspect that we that we've tried to touch upon when sort of undertaking research and sort of student engagement that we undertake at the University of East London is to try and encourage this sort of, sort of, uh, engagement and perhaps to look beyond the, in the inverted commas, the refugee archive as a source of 
information about sort of the sort of wider lives that sort of refugees might lead. So just as a couple of examples, we also hold the British Olympic Association archive, and there's a material that we've subsequently found within that collection detailing how both the sort of the official response to sort of stateless athletes wanting to compete at sort of different Olympic Games, and also the the birth of the sort of individual stories of athletes who have sought refuge and then gone on to successfully complete as sort of, sort of Olympic athletes and the emergence of the sort of, that sort of refugee team now. So we often try to sort of highlight the, the, the thing beyond perhaps sort of restricting the label to just a refugee archive, to, to, but to think about the wider the, the wider lives of, the, of these people and to, and to try to sort of frame the research in terms of perhaps not necessarily the individual being a refugee, but perhaps sort of trying to focus their story more on them as, as an athlete or a painter or an artist, you know, to try to reframe the work that we we do in that regard. And I think certainly recently been working with sort of refugee theatre groups in the UK as well. And there's a little thing about how these narratives can be sort of reapproached in terms of sort of contributors, workers, performers or artists. Etc. Rather than just that narrow, narrow focus on the, the category of the refugee, can I just say something about what I think have been interesting practices by refugees themselves in, in the contemporary moment of self-archivization and collective community archives within camps, and the sort of ways there's often this idea that refugees themselves are not aware of the need to archive. And I think what's really exciting are these local micro archives and collections that refugees themselves have built and collected, often digitized online. So you have these like Facebook pages after Facebook pages of people uploading all sorts of random things, rediscovering family, across continents through these Facebook pages and attempts at uh, sort of ingathering material that was lost along the way. And I think it's really exciting to think about also as historians, at least, uh, certainly as archivists and as artists, how we engage these collections as, as historical materials, as archival materials in and of themselves, and some of the questions they raise around what kinds of decisions refugees themselves make in what they save and don't save and why and what they upload and show and share and what they don't share and when they share it and and what sort of kind of bundle they do so. It's really exciting and it's also depending upon, you know, I work in the Middle East so I'm thinking a lot about refugees there and the decisions often made about security, about the state, about where they are, often dictate what they share with each other. But it's also, there's this kind of, you know, generational transfer that's happening now, where as conditions deteriorate decade after decade, concern over who to hand their materials onto, there's no one, you know, it's, it's something kind of profound, you know, when you see, when you go to like the Q 
archives and you see generations of people who come and visit, especially in the summers, to rediscover their family history. And you think about people who don't have that opportunity. They don't, you know, they can't go to a local archive. They can't go to their town council or their municipality or whatever. And it's not just refugees who can't do that. Many other different kinds of people can't do that either. But sometimes one of the things that I found moving in talking to refugees and, and really trying because of the kind of work that I do to ingather and materials is I'm often asked, how can I protect my, 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 my work? How can I archive myself and archive my family? Our, our photographs are decaying, our papers, because you know this thing of papers is really important to a refugee, right? Like they're often, it's amazing how you know people put them in these kinds of plastic containers that can withstand everything, but then also are not, you know, the logic of preservation is the logic of you put them in plastic bags, but then, or you fold them 10,000 times and then you keep them there for like a decade. And then like, there's no way you can open this, unopen this letter without it kind of falling apart. So then they just keep it in this like little cubic thing. And they're like, this is a letter from my grandmother to my grandfather. <laughs> But nobody's, everybody's scared and doesn't want to open it because if we open it, it'll fall apart as a letter. So th this kind of, so it's not just institutions in the global north that are making these collections. Refugees themselves are making these collections everywhere, everywhere, in many different kinds of guises and ways and for all sorts of reasons. And I think thinking of those materials as collections that are historically significant but also not collections that need to be acquired, right? That they, they are where they are. And how can I, as a historian who has, has been honored by being given access to them, support their survival under, under such conditions until they are able to be deposited somewhere where the refugees feel safe depositing them? Thank you so much for that really beautiful thought, Mesna, and the idea of a safe space to deposit precious and important and perhaps difficult memories. Um, we're at the end of our time. So thank you so much for allowing me to listen as you think out loud about these really important questions. And I'm sure our listeners agree. It was wonderful to have you. Many thanks to Paul Dudman, Heather Faulkner, Peter Cadrell, and Mesna Kato for taking part in this podcast. Links to suggested readings on refugee archives and refugee history can be found in the episode page. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.